Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Dead Cat. This is Tom, joined, as always, by Eric and Katie. Joined this week by our very special guest, Alex Stamos, the director of the Stanford Internet Observatory, though you may all know him for his earlier work as the chief security officer at Facebook, where he oversaw security on their platforms at a time that things got uh, a little weird over at Facebook. Spicy. Yeah, spicy. So this week, we're going to go deep on Facebook and Russian interference, and more specifically, if we can get there, how the media reported on this crazy brain-breaking time that we probably will never recover from. Before we get to that, though, quick public congrats to friend of the show, Ken Griffin of Citadel, (laughs) big winner of this week's Dead Cat-sponsored charity auction to win our in-house copy of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Ken beat out a constitutional DAO. Better luck next time, guys, and congrats uh, to Ken for winning. All right, Alex. So this week, we wanted to dive into a look back on Facebook and Russia and the media. The reason it's interesting now is that there was this recent arrest of Igor Danchenko, an analyst who was indicted in an investigation led by the DOJ that's looking into all the Trump-Russia 2016 election, what have you. And there's actually a great piece about it from Eric Wemple in Washington Post that uh, we can link to in the show description. But to make this short, which is never easy to do with the Russiagate stuff, this indictment essentially led to the collapse of the Steele dossier and a number of retractions from media organizations. But what was never in doubt throughout all of the investigations was that Russia did interfere in the election uh, and continues to interfere in elections, uh, as do many other countries around the world. And there's probably no one who understands that better than you, Alex. While at Facebook, you were one of the first people to grasp really how Russia used the platform for their interference campaign. And you work directly with uh, the Mueller investigation to explain that process. And then you got to see it covered by the media basically (laughs) in real time. Poorly? What's the score on how it was covered by the media in real time? I think that's what we're going to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want quick answers, yeah, but, but, you know? Before, before we do yeah. that, can you maybe yeah. walk us through what it was you saw on Facebook's platform? Yeah, we've got to get to sure. like a launching point here. So what, yeah, what exactly did you see while you're at Facebook and how did you... Eric read? wants to cut right to the end. You guys got to let me warm up into this. <laughs> yeah. Eric's like, I don't want anybody to actually know what happened. It's essential right. that right. nobody knows what happened and it's all just <laughs> hot takes. Take first, smart blather second. Yeah. I'd be like... Wait, yeah, okay. we will shit on the media soon enough, Eric, but we got to get a foundation here. You can read all about it yeah, in, in An Ugly Truth by uh, Katie's <laughs> colleagues, which is soon to be a miniseries, uh, which means all of my friends are tweeting or texting me with who should play me in the, the adaptation of a- what, what have you heard so far? Can we get some casting rumors going? Well, apparently Zach Galifianakis is the current leader. Making a dramatic turn is a surefire way to one, win an award, but also reinvent your career. So this is yeah, a win no, for everyone. I think it would be a great move for him from a dramatic perspective. I'm hoping for John Stamos, you know, even though he's like 10 years older, uh, I feel like <laughs> it's the... Stamos on Stamos could be the name of your podcast when you do the talk Perfect. about the right, show. Right, right. I'll, I'll have to do a real-time yeah. podcast with or the him. episode recaps, sure. Yes. I was criticized for making the making this too light. Now you guys are talking yeah. about okay. Activism. Katie asked a real question. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So tell tell us what you saw in 2016. So let's take so looking at the big picture, there's like maybe four different themes of Russian interference in the election, right? And so the first is one I'm not going to talk about. Just to mention is like all of the reach outs and relationship to the Trump campaign, right? So you know all of that stuff of which the Steele dossier is part part of it. There's a lot of that stuff in the Mueller report and then the Senate Intel reports. And so there's the physical stuff, right? From a propaganda perspective, 
Another part we won't really talk that much about is what is called kind of white or gray propaganda, which is the propaganda that can be tied to a government. And so that's like Russia Today, Sputnik. That's called white propaganda. And then kind of the two darker, more mysterious ways that they influence the election. Um, The first was the GRU activity. So the GRU is the main intelligence directorate of the Russian military. The GRU has existed for a long period of time. It's military intelligence. They have a hacking side and they have a propaganda side and the hacking and propaganda sides work together. So this is what we see from kind of the really high-end state adversaries is these kinds of hybrid operations where you have both a offensive computer network intrusion capability combined with a propaganda capability. And so what the GRU did was they broke into the DNC's email server. They broke into John Podesta's email, the email of thousands of other people. It turns out most of them didn't have much to do with this. Um, but the campaign that... They uncovered Pizzagate. <laughs> right, exactly. That, right. right. Uh, we broke that thing open. Eric's using this to spread disinformation. Fortunately, if, if you have a whole podcast about disinformation, Spotify will give you $100 million. So maybe this is the way for you guys to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all yeah. looking to cash out. <laughs> yeah, we're, right. we're working on it. <laughs> and so you have the GRU activity where they break in all that stuff. They, they steal all this information and then they release it in a variety of different means including via WikiLeaks, including via personas that they created themselves. Their goal was to change the conversation about Hillary Clinton. So that's the GRU activity. And then there's the IRA activity. So IRA, in this context, we're talking about the Russian Internet Research Agency. That is a private group. It belongs to a guy named Yenvegdi Prigozhin. He is what is generally considered an oligarch in Russia. He has this troll farm which at the time was in this building in St. Petersburg. They've actually moved since then. But this famous building in St. Petersburg at which they would build propaganda and spread it on social media. And they did that through the creation of thousands of fake accounts of all of these personas that would pretend to be from the countries where they spread it and then building up audiences and pushing it. Part of that includes advertising. And so the Internet Research Agency ran about $150,000 in ads on Facebook. The ads were not really for the creation of the propaganda. That was for the creation of audiences. So their goal was to use ads to target groups that might be interested in their content and then pull them into liking pages. And then the most of the content was pushed via Facebook pages. So those are the identities for these groups. They would create like a pro-immigration group, an anti-immigration group, a pro-Black Lives Matter group, an anti-Black Lives Matter group, stuff like that. Their content in the end was something like 80,000 pieces of content seen in the end by over 130 million Americans. That was the, the number one topic that they, they were talking about. And you're at Facebook when this is happening or give us where you sort of fit into this timeline. Right. So I was at Facebook when this was happening. I joined Facebook in 2015. And as chief security officer, my primary job was keeping people from hacking Facebook. Right. So I actually feel pretty good about that for my period of time. Right. Right. So we actually did a lot of really good work on security stuff while I was there. And so that's like my primary job. But then I also had a number of groups that worked on the abuse of the platform to cause harm. Most specifically there, I had investigators that worked on child safety that worked on counterterrorism. So we had the counterterrorism investigators on my team. And then we had this threat intelligence team. And so the threat intelligence team is mostly ex-US and then a couple of other from Western government intelligence analysts, worked at NSA, worked at CIA and such, whose job it was to track different governments' activity, both attacking Facebook, but then also using Facebook to do bad things. And so kind of a normal work week for them would be we found four accounts that we can tie to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and they are spear phishing 
State Department employees to try to get access to their Facebook accounts from which they can then trick Iranian dissidents into revealing themselves and then arrest them. So that's like an actual thing that we found was this big attack by the Iranians against the State Department where we had machine learning that detected the kind of activity. We figured it all out. We worked with the State Department and the FBI to round that all up and to stop it. And so that was their normal activity. And what we got pulled, we got pulled into this from two different ways. So first, we had a dedicated team working on APT28, which is the, the hacking team that's tied to the GRU. And we saw in the spring of 2016, you know, during the primary process, activity by GRU that looked like they were interested in people who work for the DNC and DCCC. If you're an intelligence agent, you've been told, I want to hack somebody. I want to hack this organization. When the first things you do is you try to figure out all the people that work there, and then you learn everything you can about them from their public social media profiles. So we had a bunch of accounts that we had previously attributed to GRU because of their activity. So we saw them doing stuff in the Ukraine, and we saw them doing hacks against the World Anti-Doping Agency. Do Facebook and LinkedIn monetize that well, or do you make sure? <laughs> no, <Sorry>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, right. Uh, yeah, we could, yeah, LinkedIn, I mean, <laughs> Facebook doesn't sell accounts, but LinkedIn could probably sell some premium accounts uh, to the GRU. <laughs> I assume most people that reach out to me on LinkedIn are affiliated with some sort of foreign state actor. So, yeah, it, it's not that's not a yeah. bad theory. And and so we saw this activity. We saw them kind of snooping around. And so they weren't doing any actual attacks on Facebook. But what they were doing reconnaissance, which is the first step in this, the standard operating procedure from that point was you go and you tell the FBI if they're targeting Americans and the FBI handles it. We now know FBI didn't really do much. Like they had all this information about different kinds of targeting of DNC. And there's all this crazy stories of them. Like, I mean, you know, the Hoover building is whatever, four blocks from the DNC headquarters or something. And somehow the message didn't make it, but okay. And then later in the year after the hacks happened, which don't happen on Facebook, they happen on Gmail. And then they happen directly against the DNC's infrastructure, which the DNC should never been running their own email server, but that's a different issue. They come back and they create these personas on Facebook called DC leaks. So, you know, WikiLeaks was kind of a useful idiot to them, but they didn't have direct control over WikiLeaks. And so they pretty clearly wanted to have personas to leak information that were under their direct control. And so they create these personas and then they start reaching out to journalists. Here are stolen documents I have. These are the stories you should write. Right. And that is effective, it turns out. Now, they also release the data in a bunch of different ways, right? And in the end, they, they get the stories written that they want. Now, the, the Internet Research Agency stuff came after of you know, in the whole discussion of fake news and such, that we had a big project to kind of answer the question of all of this fake news content, how much of it came from Russia. Now, in the long term, it turns out a very small fraction of all that, the vast majority of that content is domestically created or it's We're created bad. by... We suck ourselves. <laughs> We're just... Right, yeah. right. And, and Or it's created right. by like financially motivated actors like the, the apophrical but real Macedonian teenagers, right? Like things like that. But, you know, we did obviously found a big chunk of it and we found the Internet Research Agency activity and then announced that later in 2017. But those are kind of two different things. So on the GRU stuff, we were ahead of the curve. On the IRA stuff, we were behind the curve. And you went to the Mueller team to say we found what led to the IRA indictment. You reached out to Jeannie Rhee on the team. You know, what was her response? What was that first conversation like? Yeah. So so there's this interesting back and forth between the big tech companies and Department of Justice on all kinds of crimes in that. We have this, this is one of the interesting things that we haven't really figured out even since 2016, is how do we want this kind of law enforcement to happen on these companies? Because the truth is, is that DOJ and FBI don't have the ability to find the things that the companies can because they can't access petabytes and petabytes of data without lawful process. They have lots of power to get data on specific individuals, either in a classified or unclassified setting, but they have to know who to grab in the first place. 
And so this is actually a pretty common model of the companies notice something bad happening. You go and you send your lawyers to go brief somebody from the right U.S. attorney's office. You write, sign out an affidavit of this Facebook employee has witnessed a crime being committed. So structurally, this is the kind of conversation that happens all the time. From a political perspective, this was very different, right? In that you're not talking about reaching out to like just the normal U.S. attorney's office in Kansas or whatever, because you found a, a child molester there. Um, you're talking to the special counsel's office. Right. And it was interesting. I think in the end, I mean, they were great and they were very thankful. Um, but yeah, we went and privately told them. You personally or who is? No, there? no, no. The lawyers went. So I was part of preparing all this stuff. But like in, at that kind of level, you're not sending somebody like me in there. All the big tech companies have ex-DOJ lawyers who are in-house who handle law enforcement relationships. So we had a relationship between our threat intel team and their counterparts in DOJ. So for these big groups like APT28, the FBI actually has coordinators sitting in the Hoover building because, you know, the FBI is like a franchise, right? Just like McDonald's, there's some of them that have like great play places and some have the really clean bathrooms. So like some FBI offices are really good at doing cyber stuff. Some are not so great. So you'll end up with five or six offices looking at a campaign separately. And so the FBI, they'll have coordinators who sit in the headquarters whose job it is to watch all of this data being gathered and say, oh, these four different hacks against different steel companies in four different jurisdictions are actually the same actor, right? So we had direct relationships with those, those folks. But when you get to this level and you're talking to the special counsel, it's like you're sending the lawyer. So the lawyers go and brief her and them, and then we send our people to go talk after we got lawful process to go fill them in and to give them all the data that had been gathered. So, so this investigation by the special counsel was probably the most watched and reported on investigation, maybe in my lifetime, as your team is, is speaking to members of Mueller's team. How did you sort of view the way the media covered that? I mean, did you find that there was a fairly restrained and reasonable article written <laughs> about it? I mean, was the sensationalism already starting to creep? Because we can talk about what happens after the fact, because that's when shit really gets crazy. But even just in the lead up to the Mueller investigation, what was your perspective from where you sat? Right. I mean, I think, one, so we published a white paper I think I want to say April or something. So in 2017, in spring of 2017, we, we published a paper on what the GRU did. This is the paper that famously doesn't say it's Russia, but has a footnote that hints that it's Russia. Hmm. And there was almost no coverage of it, right? Like we did media briefings, we did this and that, and there's only a couple of stories. How right? do you hint that it's Russia, but not not actually have it be Russia? You just say a country and, and, it, and all it the said, R's are backwards I, or something? So I can, I can pull up the exact footnote, but it said something along the lines of our data is consistent with the attribution provided by the U.S. intelligence agencies in their January memo. So if, if you remember, like before Obama goes, there's mm -hmm. a joint communique from the intelligence agency saying it was Russia, right? right. Like okay. was clearly the administration are, getting are it. You wor you're worried about getting sued for libel or why the game? No, I mean, so that was a big political fight internally, which I'm sure it will be an entire episode of this miniseries with Zach Galifianakis uh, being uh -huh. yelled at by by the queen. Oh, it's part of Facebook's effort to not get as much news. So Facebook is right. playing into yeah. the, not, the lack of news coverage. I think it's, I, I mean, there's a bunch of different things, but there's comms people who did not want Facebook volunteering that bad things had happened, that Facebook had any part of this, which was clearly not going to work, right? Yeah, I was about to say, and it worked perfectly and no one's blamed Facebook since. Right, exactly. And so you have the comms people who are pushing that, but then you also have like the DC government affairs people who don't want to take a side, right? And so I think that was one of the big things is like, if you say Russia, you know, you got this new Trump administration, the right thing to do is to turn this over to the special counsel and to turn all the data over to the people who are investigating. And our job is not to get involved in the public fight, which just 
happened to coincide with the like comms goals of the company to not get <laughs> like involved in anything. Right. So yes. So there's a big fight. Like it was a lot just to get it out. Like the fact that we admitted that anything happened and, but everything in there is accurate. Just like the whole rush attribution section was cut out as in one of 85 different versions that went out, but it got very little coverage, right? If like, there's anything we've learned from the whole Mueller thing, it is that the rollout of stuff matters almost more than sort of all the technical footnoted it's not like, oh, the public yeah. eventually consumes it the smartest way as long as it's in there. It's that the the fucking headline is the most important thing and you can say, oh, it was in there. I don't know. That's yeah. that's No, I, I think you're ways. right. I think you're right. And and certainly in and so it didn't get covered much. I mean, looking back, it's not that great. I think like the treatment of Facebook has to be seen in the context of the overall coverage of, you know, Trump and Russia, which I think, you know, Ben Smith came up with this term resistance journalism. And I think there's a lot of that going on, right? In that there's a bit of a moral panic. And as long as you say stuff that is about the targets, there's not a lot of pressure from other journalists to get it totally right. And so there's a lot of kind of logical leaping. And I think that happened both before and after our announcement in September of 2017. Obviously, after we announced, people kind of lose their minds. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit because I, I I actually, yeah, we'll get to that in a bit because I pulled some, some clips uh, from that era, which was a oh, fascinating- great. I Thanks. spent a, I spent like two hours last night trolling through articles. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit because I definitely want your thanks. So so anyway, so you guys work with the, the council and it is being reported on simultaneously. Well, so we briefed Mueller way before the public announcement. Right? right. And in fact, one of the things that complicated the public announcement is that we had a gag order from the Mueller team. Right. Hmm. So like we we go and tell them and then they hit us with a gag to not talk about any of this. And so everything that Facebook publicly announced had to be negotiated with the special counsel's office, which turns into this whole kind of nightmare. When we do the announcement, it doesn't come with any of the data. And that was specifically due to this order from Mueller's office. So, you know, and I'm not a lawyer, but like these lawyers were having some pretty honest and big arguments, both with Mueller's team and then the, the lawyers in, in Congress and such. Like you, you said, Eric, the rollout is what matters. And so, you know, Facebook ends up putting out this mealy mouthed blog post with my name on it that had pretty much nothing to do with the first draft that I wrote. <laughs> like every single word was changed by a lawyer or a comms person before it went See, out. See, every yeah, reporter would tell you, you can't let people put stuff on your byline that you don't. I, I, yes, I learned Sorry. that too late. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I should not have let them get my name on it. Really? You regret the whole thing? Like, I mean, isn't it better something than nothing? I, I don't regret the white paper. I, I think getting the white paper out... So on the white paper side, I wish it said Russia. This is the other part. So when you talk about the, the treatment of the media, you know, again, there's two totally different campaigns. The IRA campaign, absolutely the responsibility of Facebook and Twitter, right? It is our responsibility to catch that. And we did not. And my team did not catch that. I did not catch that. And we didn't stop it. The GRU campaign was targeted at the media. And that absolutely worked, right? Oh, but there's a there was a story about John Podesta's pasta sauce recipe, which one could argue probably wasn't really relevant to the election issues at hand, and yet yes. there it was. Political ran a live blog. He got story. We all know. We all know that he had risotto right. recipes or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, yeah. Like, Political ran a live blog of like, what embarrassing stuff can we find in these emails? And maybe it's a Russian plot, but it doesn't really matter because it's newsworthy. And this is where I spent most of my evening yesterday reading through old articles, because as Facebook gets closer to, I guess it was just delivering testimony in front of Congress about what you found in your uh, research on the IRA. Uh, there's kind of leaks that come out the, the day beforehand. And so just pulling through a sampling of articles, you know, this one from The New York Times, actually, October 2nd, 2017 headline, Facebook's Russia linked ads came in many disguises and, you know, has a lead in there. 
The Russians who posed as Americans on Facebook last year tried on quite an array of disguises. There's an article in uh, CNN from Dylan Byers, September 28th, 2017, that refers to the IRA as a shadowy agency, which comes up very frequently, describing them as a shadowy agency that's extremely sophisticated in their ways of disseminating their not divisive information, things of that nature. Uh, There's also a column from uh, Margaret Sullivan that I want to get to later. But again, from your perspective, as these articles are coming out in advance of Facebook employees' testimony in front of Congress, what's your sense as this is being rolled out? Because it definitely fed a frenzy happening in the public that Russia fucked everything up. They came in there, they, they broke American democracy, and they did it through divisive Facebook posts. Yeah, I mean, I think, so Facebook obviously takes a huge, should take a huge amount of blame on the way that all this information was released and framed and the desire to keep everything secret and then to only allow things to come out drip and drabs really hurt the company. That being said, the overall reaction seemed crazy because it was completely out of touch with the actual quantitative size of this content. Because something like 80,000 posts sounds big until you realize the denominator on that is in the hundreds of millions. Right. And so the vast majority of this content had almost no reach. Like on the stuff where the Russians posted the content themselves, right? So IRA, they're making propaganda, they're posting it. So this is like a picture of people at a fence that is an anti-immigration ad, or it's a pro, something that looks like it's pro Black Lives Matter, but made by a fake group, right? For that stuff, its overall reach compared to other both organic and paid content was nowhere near, right? There's hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on the election on Facebook and they spent $150,000. Right, which it's like over the course of two years, which you do the math, that's what, less than 5,000 a month. I mean, like there are there are like, you know, D to C makeup brands for dogs that probably spend more on Facebook and Instagram yes. than than the IRA did. So the idea that this was a huge spend was 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 always a fallacy. And I don't know how many people that you know, got whipped up into a frenzy about it, really understood that. Well, because it also got combined completely without any evidence with the Cambridge Analytica issues, which is this kind of imaginary world in which Cambridge Analytica is this magical group of Bond villains that have mind control powers based upon, (laughs) you know, people's likes that they took, you know, illegally via an API. To be totally clear, Cambridge Analytica themselves was a scam, right? So they said they had these magical psychographic models of people. And there are quantitative metrics as to whether online ads work. There's a whole set of people whose entire job it is to think about these metrics. And on no of those met- none of those metrics is Cambridge Analytica better than just any other kinds of ad targeting that people do on Facebook. Right. And they had nothing to do with the IRA, to be clear. Cambridge Analytica had absolutely nothing to do with the Internet Research Agency. The research, Internet Research Agency did zero data upload custom audiences. So they didn't even do what we consider micro-targeting. They targeted like, you know, young men in this zip code in Baltimore for pro-Black Lives Matter messages. But none of that mattered to the narrative, which conflated these things that these Russians have kind of magical mind control powers that they were able to use through $150,000 of ads when the Hillary, the Clinton campaign spent like $100 million, right? right? And so it's like the idea that they were a thousand times better. What, what about this idea that you guys were like hand-holding the Trump campaign in a way you weren't the Clinton okay. campaign? So there's, I think, totally legitimate arguments on whether Facebook ads 
had an effect on the campaign. Almost certainly Facebook ads had an effect on the campaign, but they were the quote unquote legitimate ads paid for by the campaigns and the official committees and such using the money that our country allows people to give, you know, to, to candidates and the parties for which there are no legal controls. I had nothing to do this. So all of this, I know from the the investigation afterwards, right? But my understanding is that both campaigns, just like any other, if you're a Procter and Gamble, you get a personal, you get a Facebook employee whose entire job it is to help your campaigns run. And so these campaigns are spending tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. So they got offers of these people will help you do it. And the Trump campaign, not knowing what they're doing, said yes. And the Clinton campaign was like, no, we got this and said no. And so it is true. And it is quite possible that Trump's campaign was way better than Clinton's campaign because of that. We partially don't have this data because the data is kind of legally locked up and it's never come out and there's never been any changes to the law to allow it to come out. Hmm. Um, I actually think this is where Congress has failed the most is that there have been zero changes to online advertising law since 2016. I would like to ban micro-targeting for political ads because I think it's it's innately corrupting um, because it both drives campaigns to gather up all this information, but it also drives them to target message, right. different messages to different audiences. Both political parties do this. And both political parties think they're better. So they will make all these noises publicly about how horrible ads are and Cambridge Analytica or whatever. It's all BS, right? In private, all of these senators and congressmen are being told by their consultants who are getting paid to run political ads. They're being right. told by their consultants, we're better, do not unilaterally disarm. And so they won't pass any laws. Europe, Europe is starting to make some moves here, but in the United States, there's been nothing. Can, can we take a quick step back for a second to, yeah. to the IRA stuff? Because, I mean, you sort of brought it up and, and I, I have this column here. This is again from that same time period in 2017. This is from Margaret Sullivan, who is a great media columnist. This is not a slam on her at all, but I think it looks very interesting in retrospect and really is a good summary of the era. Um, so the headline is collusion. Who needs it when Facebook was allowing Russians to help Trump? This is a key paragraph from this this column. Much of that content, this is the IRA's content, was expressly designed to widen the cultural divides in the United States to drive wedges among its citizens, and in doing so, to help elect the Russian government's preferred candidate, Donald Trump. It worked. And while those more recent numbers are astonishing, I'm assuming this is the numbers on like reach, the reality is probably far worse. Uh, research from Columbia University's Tau Center suggests that Russian linked information or disinformation was shared hundreds of millions of times on Facebook. The numbers boggle the mind. And what here, no, let me, let me read the key paragraph here because this is where I think it really gets to the point. We need to admit the obvious. If there had been no Facebook spreading Russia propaganda, there might as well be no President Trump. Now, looking at this now from 2021, I don't want to seem too much smarter now because it's easy to be critical in hindsight. But is that an insane conclusion to reach based on everything that you saw from the IRA? And is the fact that a major you know, newspaper is publishing this in some way a failure on the part of the media or the interaction between the media and these tech companies to accurately assess the role that the IRA played in the 2016 election? Yes, that's wrong. From my perspective, the two kinds of online propaganda that were most effective was one, legitimate Facebook ads, the ads that were run by the candidates in which Trump did a better job than the Clinton campaign. Straight up above board using custom audiences and all the Procter & Gamble shit. Which again, I would like laws to change that, but we need laws to change it, right? Right. And then the second was the GRU activity because the GRU activity completely changed the tenor of the coverage of Hillary Clinton. That was incredibly effective because what they used was stolen emails that allowed them to create stories that were based upon a kernel of truth where the the story itself was not accurate. And to be frank, the U.S. media has never, ever 
ever looked inside of itself of the fact that every major news are, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, not just Fox, which like, we'll just have to write off Fox of like, what, what, sure. nothing we can do about Fox. But for all the, what I consider the legitimate media, every single one of them was played by the GRU. They wrote exactly the stories that GRU wanted and they have done no soul searching on that at all. And so, at, yes, we screwed up. Like, I will absolutely admit that we screwed up. But the idea that $150,000 in ads is as important as the entire legitimate American media changing the way it covered Hillary Clinton is just ridiculous. I, I want to just to say, Tom, in response to your comment and then in response to Alex in a minute, that Margaret Sullivan column is so interesting because it kind of erases history. You know, Russia had used propaganda to widen the divisions between Americans before. They were very active in the 60s and 70s in the United States when the country was going through an extraordinary civil rights movement. This is not the first time that Russia and other countries, but especially Russia, have used internal divisions in a country to try to destabilize the country itself. So I think that what is missed in that column is that this is not a new strategy. It's simply a new tool. And I think we could debate whether or not the tool is more effective than any other tool they've had before. And that is an interesting debate. But certainly this is not new. I mean, if you're a student of history and you've read anything about uh, Russia's efforts to cause the collapse of the United States in the 60s, you, you know that this isn't new. Yeah, Tom Tom Ridd's book on this is fantastic, right? A active measures. like Absolutely. You know, uh, the CIA invented AIDS, that whole thing. Right? I, yes, I, I think this is so good because we've now promoted Cecilia and Shira's book and soon to be TV show. And now this really <laughs> great book, Active Measures, we're really more of kind of like a marketing a, a marketing agency. Uh, do, do you guys have a code that you yeah, can get exactly. a discount on these books? You, you, need to, you need to line that up before this goes. Yeah. But I think that on the question of whether or not Newsrooms have really reckoned with this idea of being played by the GRU. There were moments where at least Dean Baquet at the times he came out in different panels, he was asked about this and he did say that it, it had led to some soul searching. I do know that internally, certainly this conversation has been had and is being had. And those are really important and ongoing conversations, especially we saw going into the 2020 election. We'll see it again going into the 20. Uh, 22 midterms. Like this, this is an ongoing conversation, even if it's not necessarily happening as publicly as it is for Facebook. And whether or not that's fair, I think is very, is a very good question. Right. It's really so, good question. So, I mean, there are, I, I want to say there are great journalists at all of these organizations who I've had private conversations with where they absolutely recognize all this. And I know that they are part totally. of the internal conversations of like, let's not get played again. On Dean Bacay, I remember very distinctly a week because I wrote something about this where Mark Zuckerberg gave his like the speech where like he changed his history that Facebook was invented because of the Iraq war, which like, yes, yes. I was not in that Harvard group, <laughs> which is why I don't own an island. But like that does not seem accurate to me. But the same week, Dean Bacay was on Michael Babaro's podcast, which I'm a huge fan of the Times' podcast. And Babaro, to his credit, is like interviewing his boss's boss's boss and asks him these really tough questions. And Bakay says, if it's newsworthy, we will publish it, right? And so I saw both Zuck and Bakay are kind of actually, to me, similar figures in that from Bakay, the everything is about newsworthiness, right? And even if you're getting played, even if the leaked documents were leaked from hacking from a Russian hacking group, they're going to run it, whereas Zuck was all about kind of free speech and the freedom of individuals. And I saw them as like in this parallel that both of them are getting played. Both of them have like this deep belief in what they're doing and can't understand how that deep belief is being used against them. So like Facebook, like we at least published 
I, yes, I failed to get the company to put Russia into that paper. The New York Times wrote nothing, right? The New York Times has never, ever written anything about we got played by the GRU, we're sorry. And so, yes, did I fail? Yes, but I at least will say it. We need to rely, right? we need to rely on media columnists for that base. We need to rely on Margaret Sullivan for those sorts Who, of articles. Who's not there anymore? <laughs> but, but Margaret Sullivan is as subject to, the, you know, the whims of the moment oh, as I anyone else. I mean, just else. like in general, it's right. true. It's really hard to get the media to write a story saying we messed up. And I think there have been many moments where various people have said, don't you think that... BuzzFeed should apologize for publishing raw, unvetted intelligence that completely changed the course of how we think about Donald Trump that's fallen apart. These questions have come up again and again for multiple media organizations, and I'm not excusing them. I'm just going to agree with you that we haven't seen the equivalent of a white paper where a media organization comes out and says, this is this is how we messed up and this is what we want to do better. So I think because of the way the media works, we are all really dependent on columnists, whether it's a Margaret Sullivan or whether it's a Columbia Journalism Review, some sort of outside forcing function to say this is important to recognize for sure, for sure. I mean, the, the handling of like the Hunter Biden emails, Joe Biden's daughter's diary, I mean, those would seem to be early signs that the media is yeah. having a much more command and control approach, which is also criticizable. I mean, it is sort of a no-win case where if there's information out there that seems It's true, absolutely gonna... no win. And it's no win right. for both the tech companies right. and the media. I mean, this is what drives me Both sides screwed up, right? And, and so did the government. So like you, you're asking about what it was like. So what did it feel like for us inside yeah. of Facebook? What it felt like was there's three people. There's Mark Zuckerberg in a hoodie. There's, you know, the FBI G-man in his suit. And there's, you know, a New York Times reporter with like the press hat on like the little, you know, the fedora mm -hmm. or whatever. And both the government guy and the press guy are like, oh man, that guy in the hoodie screwed up, right? We did nothing wrong, but they really messed up. All these things written by Facebook are accurate and true. And it is the mistakes of the company that need to be fixed. But they're in the context of an overall failure of American society to deal with this new type of attack by one of our adversaries. And unless you look at the big picture, you can't solve it. And that's like one of my lessons coming out of the 2020 election was the context of propaganda online has completely changed. And the vast majority of it now comes from verified American voices to we know exactly who they are. They're, they're not being amplified by Russians. They're not fake accounts. And they have the ability to control the media context as well as to get their, their, their messages out on social media. And until we kind of deal with the fact that this is a multimedia mm. issue and that that it flows between kind of the traditional media and the online platforms, we're not really going to be able to do anything. I don't think any of us would make this case, but some you could say that it was in the media's interest to put the blame on Facebook, to shift the blame from the media. If the bigger hack was in retrospect about using the media to spread disinformation, pointing the finger at Facebook was in the media's like financial corporate interest I mean, obviously, the only reason I, mean, I disagree with that, I mean, I mean the, I don't truly, the, truly the only reason I disagree with that is because you're talking about a period when the media was so beloved that nobody was shifting blame. Onto well, beloved us. by, if by you Democrats, were, beloved if, by the left. If you were walking down the street as a Washington reporter, you w went to an airport and somebody recognized oh, because you from, you were in like, Washington, not just in Washington, like all over the country. People were thanking you. You were getting letters. This I'm talking about the period right after Trump was elected. No, I, I know what you're talking about. Look, my mom signed up for a subscription to The Washington Post just to support them. She's like, no, I'm no, I'm not. I'm talking about the Trump 
the Trump term of his right. presidency. I mean, people are wearing democracy dies in darkness shirts in, in DC. Yeah, right? there was no blame <laughs> to shift. Who was blaming the media for Trump at that point? Now people are. Now might be the time when that thesis would make sense. But literally in the days, months after the election, basically from right. the time right. Donald Trump was elected through the issuance of the Mueller report, there, nobody was blaming the media for anything. Just like nobody was blaming the FBI. Another group that's hated, but suddenly was not hated for like a couple of years. I just want to ask what the social psychological story for the media is. If it's not that sort of narrative, like this is a good way to deflect it. Like what is your mental model? Is it just like the media is not top down enough and there isn't enough like command and control? It's like sort of that it's an organ or just like, do you have a thesis on like where the media fails on this stuff? Well, I mean, I think Ben Smith was right about resistance journalism, right? Which is like, we end up in the situation where as long as you publish something that fits preconceived notions about who the bad guy is, like if you can tell something in this, in the arc of this is, this is the bad guy and they did bad things, then getting the details right. Isn't that important, right? Like there's not pushback. And, and, that, and we see that with Facebook all the time. We're seeing that now with the Hagen documents where a bunch <laughs> of the media reports about those documents do not match up to the documents themselves once they're released, which is one of the reasons I am quite upset that this is the way these documents were released is like in a way to create kind of a feeding frenzy only for the headlines. There's a bunch of stuff in there that's going to be super important for academic study of social media. In the long run, this is going to be great because this is going to kick off kind of a much more rigorous empirical study of the things that happen online. That is going to seed a lot of great work. But in the meantime, we have to deal with the headline grabbing of like the Wall Street Journal writing this story about the Instagram slides that did not match up the slides once the slides came out. The Washington Post had a headline about Facebook uprating the, you know, the angry emoji, which was intentionally misleading in that in the story, if you read it, all of the emojis were, up, right. all of the reactions other than like were upranked. And then, and then there was an internal study and that turned out to be causing harm. So they fixed it, which is exactly what you want. People who read the, read the Washington Post story were less educated about how Facebook handles these issues than before they read, read the story. And so that is resistance journalism to me because nobody pushed back on them. The Wall Street Journal, the Instagram one has been, I mean, we've talked about a lot. What's your case? Can you just quickly articulate now your objection to that one? So there's a couple of things. One, this is like very initial work by an Instagram team to try to ask people how they feel in different circumstances to then lead to more research. And so you're talking about a very small sample size and this kind of just asking people how they feel is not that great and it's known. And then the second is there's parts where it's much more positive and Instagram makes people really happy, right? When you read this, you're like, okay, it turns out that yes, there are problems with teenagers and social media and that is something that needs to be studied and this is the beginning of that. The best part of this was like, I, there was an article in Wired Magazine, which is owned by Condé Nast, who are the people who publish Vogue, um, which is like, to get lectured by Condé Nast on, you know, beauty standards for teenage girls is is amazing and, and just kind of encapsulates the overall problem here, which is there is a problem both in social media and media in a bunch of these areas, but only one of those sides ever gets looked at and the media never looks at themselves. Condé Nast will never ask itself, have generations of our publishing. But the per- media obviously doesn't work that yeah. way. A reporter at Wired isn't even connected to what the editor-in-chief of Wired thinks, let alone what somebody at Vogue Right, but nobody writes the, nobody will write any of these things in the bigger context. No, but I, I understand the argument. And also in part because the media companies themselves aren't doing those studies too. So we're in an unusual but- situation where probably for the first time we have studies about how media products, if we want to call you know, Instagram a media product, we want to call a copy of Vogue a media product, how they're actually making people feel, you know, Vogue does reader surveys 
all publications do reader research, but it's really mostly about subscription. Did this convert a subscription or did this not convert a subscription? What do our most loyal readers do and how do we get more of them? I think to your point about why the Facebook research will continue to be important beyond the stories is that we have never seen really this much research done on media products before. And I think it would be great if more was done. I I think it'd be great if the media itself did more of that kind of research, but right now it does zero of it. So... Right. Well, which is one of the big ironies here is it's coming out the Wall Street Journal, a Murdoch property. And the idea of Rupert Murdoch having like a civic integrity team looking at his impact on democracy is kind of hilarious. I sort of realized that, you know, when Ben wrote that column, and by the way, it must be said that if we want to talk about the various purveyors of resistance journalism, the release of the Steele dossier could easily fall within that category. That was Ben's decision. To, is to, that to, amazing? Yeah. yeah. It, it was, and, and look, he can defend himself, and I'm sure he will on it. And he has several times. So He has. Yeah. And there's, so there's no reason to call him out. He's, he's a friend of the show. But it absolutely was... Friend of me. Uh, friend of well, me. Well, he, he was a great guest, and, and, and we like Ben. Yeah. He was a great guest. I love Ben. I, I started fights I, with people. I'm just <laughs> yeah. more fun. Eric, like. you are more like Ben than any of the other people on this show. And this is why you can't get all on Listen, board. Listen, I'm on side channel, my Discord thread. I write, I wrote like multi-essay screed defending Ben Smith, owning shares. I've written it on Twitter. I'm I'm the most Ben Smith toady around. I agree with Ben Smith on the Steel dossier. The like, only reason you're, the only reason you're ambivalent is because you guys are the same person. I'm just saying, yeah, the, if you if playing the Ben character, it's more fun if he's a friend of me than he's just a blind friend. Yeah, weirdly, Eric was not there that week when we interviewed Ben. So you make your own decisions on what yeah, that's Yeah, I know. About. I missed out. I've talked. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry. Oh, I just mean you're the same yeah. person. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not going to make a, a Substack joke. Um, <laughs> Aren't you supposed to make Substack jokes like every 20 minutes or something? Isn't that required of traditional journalists? But no, in in my mind, everything has become resistance journalism. Not everything. A lot of things have become resistance journalism now um, because I think people recognize that as subscriptions have driven, you know, to be the predominant business model of many of these of, of many of these news organizations, there is real need to serve that audience. Do you think that that has gotten to be more and more the case, you know, post 2016, post 2020? And if you agree with that, Alex, what role do you think? The, the tech companies and Facebook specifically play uh, in in that being the way things are. I mean, yeah. So the, the dynamics of like the change away from the advertising model towards subscriptions, that is obviously being driven by the tech companies taking up so much revenue. And I think, and I've said this publicly before, I think a huge failure by the tech companies was never to figure out a way to revenue share with legitimate media, whatever you call legitimate media, right? Like a bunch of this stuff has happened and it happened kind of too late after media was hollowed out, especially local. I saw some stat that something like 10% of people who work in journalism work for the New York Times now. It's like 4% of the actual reporters and 10% of people overall. Uh-huh. Which makes you wonder like how much support staff the New York Times has. <laughs> I'm skeptical of that. I would need to see. Yeah, I insulted Dean McKay. I talk yeah. about the New York Times being too big. I'm, I'm, this is like the getting Katie fired uh, <laughs> episode. Well, that would get rid of one employee at the New York Times. <laughs> right, right. So that, I mean, that like consolidation is clearly both from advertising being taken up by the companies, as well as the decisions of of some journalistic outlets, plus just the success of the times of building up an audience that is willing to pay all this money, but is a smaller and smaller audience, right? So, right. and that's what Substack has demonstrated. I mean, the, the New York Times thing is the same as the Substack demonstration, which is if you have a small number of people who love you, then that is way more profitable than making it, you know, trying to make it in a, a per click on an ad basis, right? But our subscription base is growing. It's not a small number of people who are subscribing. Right. 
So it's it's a it's, hardcore dedicated. You mean compared to like the entire universe of people who use Facebook or TV? And what I'm saying is like you have a there's a small number of people who really all of these media outlets that move to subscription are absolutely motivated to keep their small number of subscribers happy. Okay. I think we have more than 8 million subscribers. So I don't think it's like the tiniest number. And I'm a subscriber. I'm going to be clear. I get the times. I'm, I, you know, but like, I just have to like, we're all liberal elites, coastal elites, right? <laughs> and don't you trust it the most? This is what I want to ask. What do you trust? Like what, if not the times, what, you know, like. Well, I do trust the times most of the time, except like I'll read these stories. I mean, most. Again, there's a difference between like things being factually accurate or not and things being applied in the right context or the amount of coverage they get. Right. right? Yeah, I understand. I mean, like this idea of resistance journalism, I'm opposed to it. I'm just in practice. Just that's just me. I mean, if you look at most of the things that came out of the Francis Hogan stuff, you can agree or disagree with the conclusions and, and whether they, uh, you know, illustrate a completely fucked up company. Or the question is like, well, should they just have released that information publicly? And we could have seen, oh, there were research internally at Facebook showing that there are a percentage of, of young girls that use Instagram that are unhappy. Obviously, you don't want to put out the internal deliberations of the New York Times, but some sort of public discussion of a decision as to why they chose not to run certain things would sort of benefit people to understand what the process is that, you know, separates a, a mainstream news organization from one that has no credibility. I mean, in the Facebook side, I think absolutely they should publish it. We go two directions from this. One, either tech companies start to publish these things because they realize that doing it themselves makes it not a scandal. Like a bunch of these reports are just reports on like, there are good things and bad things. Like the Instagram right. one, honestly, is both sides. And so if Facebook published that, it would not be seen as like this huge scandal for which you need all these investigations. We actually launched a journal at Stanford, which was totally coincidental with the Hogan stuff, but I think it's pretty, the Journal of Online Trust and Safety, specifically because we want to get platforms to publish peer-reviewed research in places that they can interact with academics and, and others. So I, I think that's a good thing. There's also the possibility from here is that companies just don't do the research. Because the truth is, is that Facebook has more people working on this than the rest of the industry combined and is now being punished for that fact. And so there's also a possibility that if you're at TikTok, you're like, oh, no, never look, never create a document that says anything's bad because eventually if it leaks, it becomes a scandal and it's better not to look. To go back also to like kind of the 2016 story, Facebook is not the largest advertiser on the internet, it turns out, not even by a long shot. And there's another large company, Ramsher Schmoogle, um, that had lots mm -hmm. of stuff going on that quietly found it, never told the public, never told Mueller's team, never told anybody because they're not legally required to. Wait, you think Google is worse than Facebook and Russian interference in the 2016 election? I don't, I don't know because we don't know anything. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> and, and since then their playbook has been to not share anything. Right. So like Facebook has crowd tangle, which might get killed. So like it, CrowdTangle is this fantastic platform right. that is super useful and was incredibly key to our 2020 work. And all the signs look like Facebook's going to kill it. But as of right now, Facebook has incredible transparency. Twitter has incredible transparency. YouTube is in, almost impossible to study as an outside researcher. TikTok is almost impossible to study as an outside researcher. And so I think we're going to need to have mandated transparency here because what's happened so far is that the companies that have opened up have had a huge amount of criticism and there's never any criticism in the companies that have decided not to open up. And as long as that dynamic continues to exist, I think we're, we're going to have this lopsided coverage, but also the inability to fix some of these problems. So guys, I'm sorry. I have to time out. My daughter's school is about to call Such us. Run. So it'll be okay. about 15 minutes. So I can continue this conversation in 15 minutes or we've got no, to wrap no. it up. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I think we've gone long. Should I give it like a little goodbye? So you can yeah, 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 yeah. Yes.
Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> or like, what's the concluding point? Or like, I was about uh, to say, well, well, Alex, I think we've all agreed that Facebook and the media companies are all the same, that we all need to get in the same ship together <laughs> and, 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 and figure it all out. <laughs> They're not all the same. I think what we have, right. My conclusion would be we have fundamental weaknesses in our media environment as well as like the psychology of Americans. And we have to look at the big picture if we're going to understand or deal with any of these problems. Thank you so much for having me. I'll send you guys the recording. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ox. We, we really appreciate it. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.